I think failure is necessary for success. You gotta stumble and fall before you learn how to walk. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. I would like to introduce Dr. Carl Fichtenbaum. He is a professor of medicine. First of all, you're a physician, an MD, but a professor of medicine at University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, working in the division of infectious diseases. Did I get it right? You got it right. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Thanks for being here today. So listeners, I want to give you a little bit of background. Carl is not only my producer's father, but also my friend's manager and one of our podcast guests, previous guests, Susie McElvain, works for you, correct? Yes, she works in our practice. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So when I heard about you, I was like, we got to get you on on the show. So why don't you give us a little bit of background? Where did you grow up? Our listeners like to hear about where you're from, and then we'll move into your um, work that you've been doing the last 30 years. Sure. Uh, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and I grew up there for about eight years, and then my folks moved uh, to St. Louis, Missouri, where I went to high school, and then I went on to medical school in the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and that was a six-year program out of high school. Really? Yeah, it was an interesting story. My um, parents thought I wanted to be, uh, from their day and era, a song and dance man in the (laughs) vaudevillian tradition because I was a performer and I was playing a lot of music. And then I told them, I said, you know, I really like science and I really want to help people. And I think I want to be a doctor. And after my dad got back up from falling off of his chair onto the floor, (laughs) they started to help me with that. And they found this rather unique medical school that took people right out of high school, which was a little unusual back in the day. So were either of them physicians or were they more musically oriented? No, my father could not carry a tune if he had it in a paper bag. (laughs) Um, My mother likes singing but has no rhythm. Uh, Tragically, that was passed along to my son, but not my daughter. (laughs) She has quite good rhythm. So, um, but they, my father was interested in the health field. Um, What did he do? Well, he was an epidemiologist and a social worker. And in fact, he's a World War II veteran. Um, Wait, wait, wait. An epidemiologist is a... So that's somebody who studies how and why diseases or health patterns occur. Is that physician? Are you a physician? Are you an MD? No, you can be a PhD or you can have a master's degree. Okay. And so he was... Very much interested in being a doctor. In fact, in World War II, there was a program, and he tested into the program to become a physician. And then a little thing happened called the war, and they needed everybody to Mm -hmm. sail across the ocean, which he did faithfully and landed D-Day plus one on Omaha Beach. Wow. And so he was in the European theater, and he never got the chance to go to medical school, So that was really his dream. But he did 
run a couple of neighborhood health centers. Okay, wait, when you say European theater... So uh, in World War II, the year, it's called the European Theater as okay. opposed to the Asian Theater where there was fighting on two fronts. We were fighting the Japanese and we were fighting the Germans. And so in war terms, I guess that's what they call it. Oh, okay. And so uh, that's where he was. So if you've watched okay. the famous movies of D-Day yes. and if you've watched the Battle of the Bulge, yes. my dad was in those. Wow. And... Um, is he still living? Uh, no, he passed away a few years ago. Okay. Um, he died at the age of 87. And, you know, he he, he was uh, a hero. Um, and uh, he was a great guy. But what he did was in neighborhood health centers. Okay. So um, the Johnson administration had something called the War on Poverty, and they decided that it would be helpful if in every neighborhood there were doctors and healthcare providers where there weren't any before. Mm. And so they began funding the first neighborhood health centers. And my dad was part of one of the very first neighborhood health centers because George Sauer, who was then the undersecretary for the Department of Health and Human Services, was from New Haven, Connecticut, and wanted a pilot project in his hometown. Got and it. so they they formed something called the Hill Health Center, which was formed in the heart of the African-American community at a time when there was a lot of poverty and in particular lead poisoning. Right. And so one of the things that my dad did was lead campaigns to try and lead Educate. to healthier children. Yeah. And also to get rid of lead poisoning get rid of lead paint and make people aware. So why did you move from Connecticut? Well, his boss at the time moved to St. Louis University and decided he would offer my dad a job. So we made the trek across country and grew up a Cardinals fan and happily a St. Louis Blues fan. I might add the Stanley Cup champion, St. <laughs> Louis Blues. Nice. I had to get that You in. had to get it in. Okay. Yeah. So that's where you grow up. You go into medical school, really gosh, through high school, which, so you're young when you get into residency. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I started in medical school at 18 and the medical school I went to was different. It was patterned after uh, Chinese medicine schools. Okay. And there was a, a famous writer, the writer Edgar Snow, and he introduced Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger to Mao Zedong mm -hmm. and to China. And he happened to be friends with this cardiologist, E. Gray Diamond, who was centered in Kansas City, Missouri. And E. Gray Diamond wanted to build a new medical school that would provide new primary care providers for the state of Missouri. And so in the 1970s, they started this new medical school. And I believe I was in the sixth class wow. <clears throat> of that medical school. And so... Um, it was kind of a unique experiment because, A, it was taking people from high school, and B, we got to see patients from day one. Okay. So it was very different than other medical schools. Many medical schools are like this now yeah. with exposure to patients right away. So do you think that that, that education, that model, impacted you going into working in infectious disease? Well, in a way, it was kind of... Um, uh, an interesting, strange twist of fate. 
So um, my father told me that it would be a really good idea if I took this loan from the state of Missouri for family practice. Okay. And I said, okay, well, I wanted to be the kind of doctor to help people in communities, in poor communities, where they didn't have doctors, and I wanted to take care of families. And that was sort of my mission or my idea in life when I entered medical school. And so then I had to make a decision, and as I went through medical school, I realized I wanted a little bit more specialized training than family practice, so I decided to do internal medicine pediatrics because, A, I'm just a big kid and I love them, so I wanted to take care of children, (laughs) and B, I like the idea of taking care of families. So I went to do internal medicine pediatrics, and the state of Missouri did not think that that was family practice or met the letter of the law, so they called their loan in. Originally, I had planned to go back to Missouri and serve in an underserved community to help pay off my medical school debt. And so I had to pay my debt off. And so in my residency, I had this new freedom that I could decide basically anything that I wanted to do. But I had a problem. What? I liked everything. (laughs) Yeah, but you so specialized, which we need to get to. Yeah, so I liked everything. What's really interesting was in medical school, my mentor and my docent, uh, William Surridge, um, we used to call him Wild Bill. He was quite a character. (laughs) Yeah. He looked at me one day and he said, you're going to subspecialize and you're going to go into something in internal medicine. And I was like, how do you know what you're talking about? And here I am, I'm probably, you know, 22 years old and you have no idea what you're talking about. That guy was smarter than anything. He knew exactly what he was talking about. I think what he saw in me was the way my mind worked and the way I was curious and the way I was so interested in learning and figuring out why. It wasn't good enough to know this is the answer. I needed to know why. Yeah. And I wanted to understand how we could make it better. How could we fix it? And how much could I learn about it? And I didn't care what it was. Yeah. So when I went to my residency, um, there were a lot of patients at that time with this very new, strange, and weird disease called HIV. And in fact, in medical school was the first time I had seen people with this disease. It wasn't even called HIV. Yeah. It wasn't even called Remember AIDS. Remember I told you on the phone I learned what it was? Yeah. Which yes. is very upsetting. It is. So a little bit of the history of medicine is, is that we are not always the best in how we categorize things in life and what we say. Yeah. And so when this first came out, what people called it was GRID or gay-related immune deficiency, because the very first people that we recognized to be infected were people who were from the gay community. Mm-hmm. And so- Can you tell us about the first patient? So this is the 80s. This is when people don't understand the disease. Everybody's worried that they're gonna get it. Yeah. Can you share with our guests the first patient that you took care of and walk us through maybe I'm guessing you were one of the few people that opted in to go take care of this patient. Well, yeah. So I I remember it was uh, a young man who had what's called cryptococcal meningitis. Cryptococcus 
is a fungus, a yeast. It is found normally in soil. Um, and usually it doesn't hurt us very much because our immune systems can defend us. Yeah. Sometimes you can inhale the spores of this and it causes a, a touch of pneumonia, but it usually goes away if you're healthy. In people who have HIV infection, whose immune system is destroyed and they have AIDS, yes. those people get very, very sick and they get meningitis. And what we couldn't understand was why is this otherwise healthy young person in Kansas City having this terrible meningitis. And I remember going into the room as a medical school, and I think it was 1983. And, you know, there was, uh, the person looked so sick, and I was still mm -hmm. learning, you know, how do I be a doctor? How do I wear a white coat? How do I, you know, act like something? And it was really kind of terrifying. But at the same time, I was really curious, and I was never... Uh, worried or afraid or fearful of anything. I always said that if I was alive during the Black Plague, yes. I would have been part of the one-third of physicians who died from the Black Plague. Because you would have been frontline. Because basically two-thirds of physicians decided that they would help. One-third of the physicians actually went in and took care of people, and the rest absolved themselves of their Carl, were you married at that oath. time? So in 1983, I Wait, did was... Did you have a wife or children at that time? I was very much in love with my wife at that moment, but we were not married. Okay. Um, and But we uh, were very much together and knew we were going to be together for the rest of our lives. And Did she worry? Oh, no. Oh, no. Not at all. But there were so... Back then, there were so many like fears around it. Yeah. I mean, doctors would refuse or nurses would refuse to go take yeah. care of them. Yeah. So uh, when I told my mom, and this was, I think, roughly about 1989, I roughly had made up my mind that I was going to be an AIDS doctor. And she said to me, is that safe? Now, you have to understand that my mother is a tremendous social activist who, you know, uh, protested for civil rights, uh, uh, protested against the Vietnam War, uh, against apartheid, and has always taken the side of the underdog and the downtrodden and mm -hmm. tried to really help make the world a better place. And here she was, she was worried about whether or not her little boy was going to get sick with something. I said, no, mom, you got nothing to worry about. I'm just taking care of people. Mm. So what I really noticed in the mid-1980s was during my residency, about one-third of my fellow residents refused to take care of AIDS patients. Really? And when they were assigned to them, they would do what's called the history and physical, but they would do what we call dry labbing it, which what's is, that mean? is they would stand at the doorway, talk to the person, Shut up. find out what was wrong with them from that distance, never examine them, and just write orders because they didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to be in the room. And we as doctors, young doctors in training, we did a lot of the procedures. We did all the lines, the tests. We put IVs in. We drew blood. Um, we got all the sampling. We did lots of things. And many of them refused to do that. Whereas I went in wearing no gloves, wearing very little protection, if any, whatsoever. And I made sure I sat down on every bed. I held every hand. Mm -hmm. And we talked. 
because I was more interested in that human connection for a disease that was clearly devastating people who were almost as young as me right. and looking terrible. We had nothing oh. to offer them back then. We had no medications. We had no approved treatments. And we were dealing with devastating diseases that made people waste away, look like they were emaciated right. from a concentration camp, yeah. weighing 80 pounds, losing their eyesight, having pneumonia, having meningitis, having terrible health problems, and just being whittled away inch by inch. Yeah. So, okay, at that point, so in the 80s, there's no cure. There's really, they're trying to figure out, walk us through sort of the history of what what we knew when. Yeah, so a little bit of politics and intrigue. It's kind of a, a an interesting story. It's a fun story. And also yet a sad commentary on our society as a whole. So in 1981, there were two reports, one from New York and one from Los Angeles, five and seven individuals respectively, who developed these very unusual diseases. They had strange pneumonia and they had a strange cancer hmm. called Kaposi's sarcoma, which we don't ever see really okay. in this country. And so this was in 1981 and they were all gay men. Okay. And so at that point in time, already within the gay communities, there were a lot of people sick, a lot of people dying, and a lot of fear. And no one knew what was going on. And the CDC didn't do anything right away. It took them two years Why? to come up with a definition because this was an underrepresented population that were mar marginalized. We just celebrated... I believe, the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall, which was this uprising, right, that occurred in New York City in the gay community because people who were gay were being discriminated against just because they were, they were gay. gay. And so here you were, it was 1979, 1980, people are getting sick with a strange disease. It's first reported in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report of the Centers for Disease Control, 1981, and it takes two years for the CDC to come up with a definition. By contrast, yes. if you fast forward, we had this strange disease called the Four Corners disease. It was Four Corners virus. Okay. It was a hantavirus. It was this terrible disease that in New Mexico all of a sudden was killing young people. We found out it was from little rodents and mice. Yeah. It's a special virus. There was a definition of that disease within one week, and we identified the virus within two. So so I remember growing up, um, it was often, they were marginalized, and it was often, well, only gay people get AIDS. And it was, it was like a moral uh, kind of thing. Well, they must get it because they're sinning, and I have air quotes going yes. with that, right? Yeah. Yes. And that really, I think, perpetuated maybe the two-year thing, but did it also perpetuate getting a cure? Or no? Did people start working on it? No. So what really happened was is that the gay community organized themselves. Yes. And the thing about it was is that many within that community were highly prominent citizens. They were big earners. Okay. Also, many of them had participated in the 1960s in protest movements. So they knew how so to they organize knew how to organize protests. And 
They were well-funded. Got it. And so they were also terrified because people were dying and it didn't matter whether you were a captain of industry or you were homeless. Right. If you were gay, you were in danger. So they organized ACT UP, you know, which was one of the first groups that really organized. And they demanded that the CDC and physicians start to investigate this. Okay. They further kept demanding every minute of the way for new changes. In fact, the reason why cancer drugs yes. get approved so quickly was because AIDS activists chained themselves to the FDA to demand changes in the way drugs were approved. No one had ever protested really? at the FDA before. They were terrified. They didn't know what to do. It was a very good tactic. They came to every meeting. Yes. They held protests in the meeting. I remember very vividly when I was at the Berlin meeting in 1993, there was a whole AIDS protest and they came with buckets of red paint representing blood saying, you have blood on your hands for the way we're doing our research. And they threw blood on these prominent researchers that I knew sitting up on stage. I mean, it's just through these buckets of red paint, ruined their suits and clothes, everything like that. It was very much in your face kind of protest. Yeah. And they demanded a seat at the table and they changed the paradigm. So then the CDC had to come up with a definition. A year or so later after that, we discovered a virus. Okay. That's a very interesting story because it was discovered in France by Luc Montagnier. Luc Montagnier then was going to submit this to our most famous journal, Science. Yes. As a result of that, he sent the virus and some samples to a very well-known virologist, Bob Gallo, to say, can you verify what we're finding? Yeah. Interestingly enough, they delayed his publication, and Luke Montagnier and Bob Gallo wound up publishing simultaneous articles. In fact, the president, Ronald Reagan, had to negotiate with the president of France a treaty on the rights to the patent for HIV. It was a negotiated treaty because there was potentially scientific misconduct involved which I think most of us in the scientific community understand, which is why Luke Montagnier won the Nobel Prize. Wow. And I don't think Bob Gallo has yet to, yet to achieve get. that. So so because obviously we're all about failing forward, what I want our guests to hear, yeah. um, you know, you're a researcher. You guys were fighting to find a cure. And I'd love if you could share kind of your greatest gifts that you got because you were fighting to save people's lives. And I know you told me on the phone that it took years for this. So maybe share with the guests some great learning lessons or, I don't know, some inspiration for all of us around how do you persevere and fight through that? So one of the things that I decided when I was in residency was I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to serve the underserved population. And so I picked this disease because I felt like people were being marginalized because of an infection, mm -hmm. a disease. That seemed wrong to me. And it wasn't just gay people. There were hemophiliacs. Right. There were people from Haiti that were being rounded up and put into like prison camps in Florida. And there was a big epidemic in Haiti, right? Yes. So 
there were many different people. Arthur Ashe, the famous tennis player, had a blood transfusion as part of having bypass surgery and died of AIDS. Right. So I wanted to make a difference. I knew I was interested in what we call an academic career, which is being at a university and trying to teach others, trying to help others, but also to do research, to investigate. And so- To find the why. Remember this, you said that earlier. That's right. This is what I wanted to do. So I knew I had to train myself. So the first thing I did after my you know, med peds was I, I did an AIDS fellowship for one year at Yale. Okay. And then I went back to St. Louis where my folks were. And I went to Washington University where they, I knew that they had a research unit that was studying people with HIV. And I had tried my hand at doing some research uh, in the in the lab, right? And um, you like the people part. I wasn't very good at it. I I have <laughs> to admit that I didn't. I, I wasn't very successful. Um, I was working on some things. I was actually in this day and age in residency. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you there weren't work hour restrictions. Right. This was uh, before Libby Zion, who died from uh, meningitis and changed work rules in New York City for the entire country for residency programs because we were overworked, right. overtired. I was working an average of between 100 to 120 hours a week. And then I would go in at night on my own time and I would go into the immunology laboratory and I was working on this assay in the lab, trying to develop uh, this assay for a new disease that um, we later found out was something called Helicobacter pylori. Okay. It's an infection that causes ulcers. It's one of the most common causes of ulcers. Okay. And at that point in time, we didn't know the name of the organism. All we knew, we called it a Campylobacter-like organism. And nobody knew what it was. And I was working on trying to create a cutting-edge lab test. I wasn't very good at that, but <laughs> it was kind of fun working in the immunology lab. And I realized... I just enjoyed people more, and yeah. I wanted to do human research. So I looked for a program like Washington University where I could work with people. And at that point in time, there was a new, a newer group that had been formed in 1986 called the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. Okay. And the goal of this was a National Institute of Health-funded right. group that would try to find the answers to solving the problem of HIV. So it took years for you guys to figure that out. How did you get up day in and day out after losing patient after patient? Well, because there's always hope. And because even when I lost patients, yeah. I was helping them. I'm mm. My job is to help people through life and death. I, I'm a physician. I'm a healer. And my role is to really help people uh, throughout all phases. And so, you know, I want, yes, I wanted to find answers. I wanted it to be better. And we were desperate and we were losing too many people. Yeah. Um, but also, y- you have to help people with dignity and with grace, you know, so that they can go through both their life and their death with a little bit of respect and kindness. That's really important. So I always feel like um, people that work in hospice, I was like, I don't know how they do it. Well, you're doing something very similar. Well, yeah, in the early years, 
you know, 90% of my patients died. Right. And so I worked very- 90%, that's crazy. I worked very closely with hospice programs. Um, I worked very closely with people trying to decide when they had had enough, what they could do. Um, I'll tell you one story aside. This is uh, a very powerful story. Um, There was a a young man who was from Puerto Rico, and uh, I was taking care of him. He had AIDS. Yeah. And he had a terrible disease called cytomegalovirus. It's a a virus that uh, causes infection in the eyes and the brain and the spine. And he was losing the ability to walk. He was losing his eyesight. And he just wanted to go home to Puerto Rico to visit his family before he died. Mm -hmm. And so I gave him a little bit of an unknown treatment. Uh, uh, It was called gancyclovir. It was an IV antiviral agent that hadn't been used carefully in people with HIV yet. And I was happy to use anything. And I gave him a few more months so that he made it back to Puerto Rico. He got to see his family and then he and his partner came back. And what I remember the most was um, I brought my son in to visit. He was about seven months old. And I just thought, you know, I'm coming in on the weekend. Uh, I might as well do something nice. And so um, he had those balloons, you know, that people bring in. Yeah. And there was a little Mickey Mouse, you know, to the balloon. And yeah. he pulled that thing down and he, and he said, um, you tell Walter, my son, yeah. you tell him my story when he's old enough. Mm-hmm. And he said, here's the Mickey Mouse for him. And we still have that Mickey Mouse. Ugh. So those were the kind of stories that you would get one by one. Yes. You know, and so it was really important to try and find an answer. Now, there were two big areas when I was started. One was, how can we prevent and treat all these sicknesses? Okay. You know, because people are dying from something. We don't have the treatment for HIV, so what do we do with those? And then there was another group that was saying, well, how do we treat the HIV? Got it. Right? Okay. So- As it turns out, life is always just a matter of circumstance, right? Yeah. Where I was, they were very famous for knowing how to treat other diseases. And there wasn't really a a virologist or somebody at Washington University who was really focused on the HIV treatment. Okay. So I focused a lot of my efforts and energy on trying to treat the problems because of that. Oh, so that's what you do today with your HIV clinic. Right. Right? I, because what, I, what I'm what i sure listeners are like, so if he's still working in that, like people don't think that people still have HIV that much. Oh, yeah, they do. They do? They do. So I still No, see, but I mean, the, the, the belief is that it's cured. Oh, sure. Right. Right? But it's, not, but it's not gone. And there are- Yeah. We're, well, humans are kind of funny. What happens is, is that we make inroads on a problem- and we get close, yes. and then we turn our attention somewhere else because we are the McDonald's generation, the Twitter generation. After a few seconds, out of sight, out of mind. Right. And we've made a lot of progress, so don't get me wrong. Sure, sure, sure. But at that point in time, 
I had to go with what my mentors were doing, yes. what they were working on. And so we were treating different diseases. We were treating fungus infections that were occurring. We were treating bacterial infections that were occurring, viral infections. And, and basically, I became one of the world's leading experts on something called candida, okay. which is a yeast infection that it, it occurs in the mouth. I think most people think of it like a diaper rash in a little baby. Okay. Women sometimes get a yeast infection. Yeah. But you can get a terrible infection in your mouth and your esophagus, and you can't eat. Well, what happens when you can't you eat? You get skinny and emaciated. You get skinny like and never, you can't swallow your pills and everything like that. Right. And it got to the point where we had untreatable cases, and so nobody knew how to treat it. So I became one of the world's leading experts on how to treat that and what to do about it. And I remember I designed my first study to say why, uh, you know, it was 1993, 1992 when I started designing it, and uh, I was still a fellow. Yes. I was still learning. And it was, you know, why do we even have this... Um, you know, this problem and and why is it not responding to one of our medicines called fluconazole? So I had to come up with a, a hypothesis. Well, nobody had ever done this before. So I guessed. I said, well, if we give it to people every now and then, yeah. as opposed to all the time, if we give it every now and then, that's probably why they got resistant to it, which is if we gave it to them all the time, it probably wouldn't get resistant. Well, it was the exact opposite. <laughs> uh, you know, so I was wrong. But I, I was but, wrong right from the start. But then you pivoted and figured course, it out and didn't right. bury your head in the sand. All oh, right, no, we no. try something else. No, no, no. At least I knew the answer. I had yeah. a 50 50 shot at it. We got the right answer. And then we knew okay, the problem is, is that the more people are on this medicine, the more likely they're going to fail. So we have to be careful and we have to find new solutions. So we made up new solutions. We found solutions that would work. But we knew that the real problem was the virus. Yes. So one of the early studies that we did, what I do typically is I do studies on people. So there were no medicines that were working. We were doing these studies where we gave AZT, the very first drug to people. Right. And it made them sick. They became so ill. They had to take the medicine five times a day. They had to take it every three hours. They had to wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah, it was making them sick. But it wasn't nothing, helping. It wasn't helping. It wasn't helping them. It would help lower the amount of virus in their blood by maybe a couple thousand points. So but, how long did AZ? How long was AZT used for? Well, it it became licensed in 1987. It was originally a chemotherapy drug, right? And somebody decided, well, let's just test everything, right? Yeah, let's just right. So they tested it. And in the lab, it looked like it stopped HIV from growing on a Petri dish, right? Okay. But when we gave it to people, mm-hmm. we had no way of measuring whether it was working or not. So we gave it to people who were really, really sick, and they seemed to get a little bit better. We got really hopeful. Remember that Berlin meeting I mentioned? Yes. I went there with my wife. That was the World AIDS meeting. It was the most depressing meeting ever. We failed. The The Europeans came out with a study called Concord, which showed if you give people this medicine for two years, even if they're sick, it does nothing. It doesn't help them because all by itself, AZT wasn't enough. 
it would only drop virus level by about a half a log. So after that Berlin meeting, conference. Everyone was depressed. Nobody knew exactly what to do. We had another medicine that we didn't even realize was as powerful as we thought it was. It was called nevirapine. It was a medicine a little bit like AZT and how it worked. Yeah. But when we gave it, we used it in the test tube, the virus quickly became resistant. We didn't know that if we paired it with AZT and another medicine, it could actually help people a lot. It was like the like magical cocktail. Right, exactly. We basically had ingredients for a drink, but had no idea how to put them together. <laughs> so, so tell us when it started to turn. Well... Um, it really started to turn in 1994, okay. 1993. So I remember going to a couple of conferences because I was in this group of people, which was the inner circle of probably some of the best minds working yeah. on this all over the world. One of the things we invented was something called the virus level. We could actually measure in the bloodstream using genetic testing we could measure how much HIV was there. Well, that made a huge difference. Okay. Because once we could do that, then we understood. We also had figured out the structure of HIV and a lot of its function. And because of that, some really cool scientists did some work with computers where they did imaging and they made these three-dimensional diagrams where you could see this is exactly where a certain enzyme works in HIV, and yeah. if we can put something right in there, we can block it. Wow. And it was the first designer drug ever invented okay, by wait, human when beings. Was, when was that? When was that? So the first designer drug, there was a competition between two big companies. One was Roche and one was Abbott Laboratories. Yeah. And Abbott Laboratories um, had a great scientist, John Leonard, and they had a big scientist, David Ho, who will be a Nobel wow. winner at some point in time. Who had the, who had David Ho? Um, he was working with Abbott, Abbott. Laboratories, okay. and they had this medicine called ritonavir. And it was a designer drug that they designed, the chemist designed it, and it fit right in this pocket, and it stopped HIV from continuing its process of building itself in our cells. Okay. And so the only problem was they couldn't figure out how to make it into a pill, they could only make it into a liquid. Okay. And so... But who cares? Who cares if it's a pill or liquid? Well, so here was the thing. We did taste testing. I personally tasted it. It was kind of a cross <laughs> between 151 proof alcohol and glue. Okay. So it was awful. So in okay. fact, when we gave it to patients, we came up with all sorts of things like peanut butter. You know, try peanut butter coating your mouth. So here we were. But I guess we actually, did. We did one of the first. If you had all that mouth, all those mouth sores or whatever you're yeah, that would be fun. In, that would no, be awful. It would be awful. So we did one of the very first studies of ritonavir, one of the very first studies in human beings. It was a phase one study that showed that it could work to lower HIV virus level, and that I rec- I remember I recruited. Um, Nine people in seven days on that study because we needed 20 people and there were three sites. So there was the Rockefeller, which was David Ho's site. And then there was uh, uh, George Shaw and Mike Mike Sag in Birmingham and our site. The reason why we got this study was for me because I had been 
working with another fellow, Dan Birch. And Dan went to work for Abbott Labs, and he and I were good friends. And I said, Dan, what are you working on? He said, well, we got this new compound. I said, let's go, man. I'm ready for it. So unfortunately, I do remember that, you know, that study, while it worked and we showed that it worked, we didn't really help people. And I always remember there was a a principal of a high school the nicest man, and I, I was very sad when he passed away. He did that study, and I remember, and he was really wanting it to work and make a difference, and it just wasn't enough because it was by itself. But two years later... Just two years. Two years later, we put them all together, and then we had the Vancouver conference, and while we failed previously because we didn't know how to put these medicines together, now we succeeded. We finally succeeded, And there it was in Vancouver, one of the best meetings I ever went to, where we had two studies, the Ritonavir Advanced Study and the Merck 019 Study, which demonstrated we could save lives if we put the medicines together. And that began the cocktail, which always sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) And that's how we started treating people, and we started making a big difference in people's lives. So we failed in all the early years of our studies, and I could go through a thousand studies we tried, all the wrong answers, and we've gradually made our way each year. And what was amazing was is that we were able to drop the death rate from HIV 80% in one year. You could see it. Oh if you God. look at the CDC d- statistics, you can see 1995 and 1996, and the death rate just plummets. Well. I, first of all, I want to say thank you because the gift that you've given your patients and our community is amazing. Amazing. And I loved your story of your Puerto Rican patient. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I think what this really shows me is, is that there's always hope for humanity, that we have to... You know, we find our way in dark places where things don't work right. And early in my career, no matter what we did, the patients died. Mm -hmm. The research didn't work. We didn't have the answers. And now we do. And it kind of gives me hope that we can make it to that next level. Can we find a cure for HIV? Because we've learned so many things through all of our failures in this research and all of our successes that have helped many other diseases We've developed tremendous techniques. So I'm ever hopeful that human beings will come up with new and creative ways. If we could get out of our own way sometimes and get past all of the politics and the judgmental ways in which we look at each other, I think we can find a lot of answers to a lot of human problems. And of course, I know we'll, we'll have plenty of failures in the future, but I think failure is necessary for success. You gotta stumble and fall before you learn how to walk. Carl, that's a wrap, man. That was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I wanna thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod.